Welcome to Seeds, a show where we talk with people who are living lives of purpose and doing amazing things that make a positive impact in our world. We take time to listen to them as they reflect on their life journeys and what has shaped them into who they are today and what motivates them to be involved in what they do. Well, hey everyone, welcome along to the podcast. I'm really glad you could join me this week as we get the chance to speak with Sally Duxfield and we learn all about her life, including her time in the military and the lessons that she learned about leadership from that, as well as her work now using nature as a means to help people reflect on their lives and what's truly important. I know you're going to enjoy this episode, and if you do, you might want to check out some of the more than 180 in the back catalog. I'm building up a database of stories of people who are doing inspiring things, and there's a lot more information over at theseeds.nz. As well, this interview was recorded as a video because we did it during the lockdown. So you can check out what we recorded, which is on YouTube, and I'll put that link in the show notes. Now let's get into this conversation with Sally. All right, so it's a pleasure to welcome Sally Duxfield to the podcast. She's the founder, director, and owner of SallyDuxfield.com, as well as the founder of Makahika Outdoor Pursuit Center. Thank you for joining me. Thanks for having me, Steve. It's a pleasure. Yeah, no, it's wonderful to have you on. And I know um, we were talking before we started recording about the location that you are, and I understand it's a really beautiful place. So I'm really keen to find out what you're doing at the Pursuit Center and um, just some of the activities that you're um, helping people with, you know, getting out of the city and and connecting back with nature. Um, But before we dive into that and other things you're doing today, I always like to find out about people's backgrounds and their histories. So in your case, could you start by telling us a little bit about where you're from? Sure, Steve. Really, um, I had a, a privileged childhood. I was brought up in Auckland. Um, my father was a, a dye maker and tool maker in the plastics industry and owned his own business. My mother was a stay-at-home mother, so I had that very best of both worlds. Dad was a really strong engineer, so I worked on cars. I built swimming pools. I was a very practical girl, and um, he did a lot of time. We went hunting, and we were in the outdoors. I had horses and I played sports. So I was in that environment where there was little con- uh, conflict. I was really well nurtured. Um, there was rights and wrongs. And so when I reflect back on my childhood, it was a, I feel it was a privileged childhood, not monetarily, but just it was safe uh, and inspiring. Mm. And it gave me a whole bunch of uh, skills. And so that led me into... Um, and just sorry, on that, it sounds like it was quite a creative environment then. You know, if your father was building you know presses and and doing different things that's quite a creative outlet isn't it it is and we my brother didn't participate in that particularly he was more the indoor lad and he played tennis and things like that but I was the one that worked with dad to design and if we designed something we built it so yeah it was that was great right so I guess it was the practical side of things right (laughs) absolutely yeah Oh, interesting. What had led your father to to do that as a career, do you think? you know? I just think he was a man that loved to work with his hands. And he's got one of those incredible, even now in his 80s, he's got an incredible brain that can solve problems and it almost sees three-dimensionally. So it was no academic background. I think he started work at 14. Mm. But it was what he could do with his hands and uh, just a clever man. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. And And what did that lead to in your sort of high school years? Were there areas that you were more interested in than others? I was a sportswoman. So I uh, ended up in the high performance area of New Zealand hockey as a goalkeeper. Actually, I was this little tiny, fiery, determined five foot three 
right. highly aggressive goalkeeper that kept getting sent off the, the field. But um, then that led me into uh, from schooling to go into the military. I think it was that outdoor piece and really wanting to uh, do something that was challenging. Right. And was military, was there, because sometimes I talk with people and it's kind of in their family, like my uncle was in it or other people. Were there models for you to say this is an option or was it a, you know, just this is what I'm going to do? My granddad was a, he was actually in the Indian Army, he's British, and he served in the Indian Army. And so there was some history of that. And he came out to New Zealand. He retired in New Zealand, which is where my mother obviously came through. And I knew him when I was a young woman. And he, there was just something, uh, a natural mana about him and this deep, deep nurture. So when he left the military, he uh, came to New Zealand, retired, and then actually started going, when he was in Auckland, he would go to Mount Eden Prison on a Friday and pick up in his little Hillman Imp, men that were getting released from prison that had been there for a couple of months but had no families to go to. And so he would take these young men, primarily young Māori men, and take them home. And then he would teach them uh, social etiquette and manners and how to grow vegetables. And he would give them a suit so that they could go for interviews. And he he had this strong, um, very, very strong man and very um, disciplined man, but this deep, deep nurture. And so, uh, yeah, it's quite funny if I reflect back now, mm. I'm doing some of the similar things from my granddad. Yeah. And, and you got to know him quite well? I did. Unfortunately, he passed away. In fact, one of his, one of his clients when he was, uh, I say clients, one of the men he was looking after, uh, they had a, a, an argument and he was punched and he fell over and passed away. Uh, so he was actually killed by one of the young men he was helping. Wow. Uh, so I lost him when I think I was probably 11 or 12. Wow. So just, I, I always love to hear about people like that who, you know, in a way, sacrifice something of their own comfort and their own life to reach out to others. Um, what, what else are your memories? Because 11, 12, you're, you're kind of old enough, aren't you? But you're still quite young. What other impressions do you have or memories do you have of him? I remember his great gentleness with animals. Uh, I remember him growing half an acre of vegetables and always tending. I also knew he was or felt that he was the overarching umbrella for our family. You know, he was the, uh, he did protect and he did provide. Mm. So it was, a, it was a stereotypical role, masculine role, but a great gentleness to it as well. Yeah. Well, it's amazing to think of the legacy that he, you know, even though you were quite young, clearly he had a big impression. It's actually something on the podcast that comes up quite often, the intergenerational relationships and how important the grandparents and the grandchildren are. There's something unique about that relationship that uh, for, unfortunately, I don't think many grandparents necessarily realize how much impact they're having on these young children who are watching and observing and, and learning life lessons, right? <laughs> I think it's really, really important. And it's something, um, Steve, that I, when I did a lot of work with long-term unemployed, yeah. uh, and I would say to them, you need to go and find your grandparents and, and discuss the world with them because grandparents have this amazing place in our hearts and that they're not our parents, so we don't challenge them. They did really naughty stuff that we think is, my, you know, and well, my dad did naughty stuff. He used to blow up letterboxes and things like that as a young man. So he was a scallywag. 
there will be grandparents out there that um, grandmothers who had an illegitimate child that was never discussed with their daughter, but they might discuss it with their granddaughter to to teach a lesson. Right. So I think that intergenerational learning is extraordinary, and it's part of what we're missing in our community. Yeah, particularly where people often move towns or move cities, and then uh, I guess with technology it's easier, but it's just not the same, is it? Um, yeah. I, my my wife's um, uncle did an amazing thing. He took his grandson to Europe for like a two week trip, and the grandson was maybe eleven or twelve, you know. And can you imagine the memories that are formed there by going as a? I think he was in his sixties with his grandson. And so now they've got this amazing bond because I think they went to Egypt or some random places, you know, that's like, but through that two weeks, able to input into this young person. And um, yeah. yeah, unfortunately, enough. <laughs> yeah. yeah, fantastic. Yeah. So what happened next? You, you joined the military? What, how was that? I joined initially the Army Aviation Unit with the helicopters. So that was just excitement. I love helicopters. Um, right. I love boys. Boys are great. So, you know, in the military in those days, in the early 80s, there's lots of boys. And uh, it was just an outdoor adventure. Um, and it had a sense of service. So it was always to serve. We were always doing something that contributed to. So there's always a purpose. Um, and I think that was the biggest thing for me. The life learning was that when you wake up in the morning, there's not a lot of purpose of getting up and doing something unless there's a purpose behind that. And so the military for me was adventure. It was a camaraderie. Uh, I dropped out of the high-performance sports, so I'd lost my sports team, that close relationship you have in that high-performance sports world. Mm. And it, then it, it ticked off all those boxes. So mm. there was travel. There was interesting people. There was danger. There was excitement. There was challenge. But we served down. So uh, as an officer, your, your sole purpose is to serve the men and women below you. And that really then took what I learned from granddad through to an operational business environment. And then when I left the military in my uh, late 20s, early 30s, uh, probably actually mid-30s I left the military. And that was then, that, that stage was the realisation that was in business, what I thought was missing in the corporate world was that real passion for serving down. What I saw in the corporate world was people... Uh, serving up so that they could get accolades, so they could get promotion, so they could get more money and they could have the holiday home and the boat, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. But the thought of not getting a promotion because you stood up for the men and women below you, because you annoyed somebody above you, right. didn't seem to be out there in that. And, you know, in the military, there's a lot of people that you don't actually get, you don't keep advancing. You just get to a set level and you can be extraordinary and stay there. And that's, really uh, encouraged so that people aren't always climbing over the top of each other. Yeah. So I think that's that service service down and that's what I wanted to take from the military and the strong psychology mm. of leading men and women in adverse conditions. I wanted to take that into the mm. business world. So just break down that psychology for a moment because I love that idea that you're looking after the people who you're leading. Um, yeah, have you, have you reflected on the the i guess the need for that or the the origins of that within the military context i can immediately think of some reasons why that's really important you know in terms of the danger that you're leading people into if there was a battlefield or something um but what what's the origin of it do you think 
Well, it's, it's quite interesting that different countries have led and trained their military differently. And New Zealand has been very, very clever over probably the last 40 years mm. in leadership within the military, understanding uh, neuroscience, mm. understanding the psychology of inspiring in really difficult circumstances. Because when you think about it, we pay not particularly well men and women to do particularly uh, dangerous jobs in dangerous environments, uh, but we want them to perform. And you can't do that. You can't get people to perform in dangerous environments by giving them more money. It doesn't work. You have to have their heart and you have to be able to um, inspire and pull up. You know, strength is that thing that you can, strength you can push down with or you can pull up with. It's the choice that you make. Um, and so for understanding when you carry out certain nurturing acts, the body chemicals that have been made, the oxytocin, the dopamine, those things that you make so that there's a real, there's a strong tie between the psychology and the neuroscience of leadership. Mm. And the New Zealand military particularly have done that well. Mm. Yeah, that's really interesting. Because I think for, for people who've been through the military and have had those relationships that are so close and you're looking after each other, it must be quite a huge shock to come out from that into the the more corporate world that you've described, you know, where it is a bit of dog eat dog, I'm getting to the top. I've got to, rather than the camaraderie of we're in it together, we have a greater purpose. And yet ultimately I agree with you. Usually it doesn't come back to how much your salary is. Usually it's why am I doing this? I, I need some reason. It, you're going to pay me an extra $3,000 a year. Well, it's, that's not my motivation. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Interesting. And how did you find the transition out from the military and that sort of way of being um, into that world? Well, I went straight out of the military into motherhood and we we're on a diplomatic post. So we spent sort of five years overseas. And so okay. I dropped quickly into that role of being a, a mum to my first baby when I was in my mid-30s. And then obviously started really going, I, I, there's got to be, that wasn't my purpose. Mm. Despite, I adore my daughter, fantastic, but she wasn't the driver for my world. And I, I came back to, into New Zealand, started uh, a consultancy to, a leadership consultancy, because I wanted to come back and start building teams. Mm. Uh, and where had you where been I, in that diplomatic post? Which country were we you? We were in? just in Canberra, um, but okay. we did a lot, of, a lot of around the world travel yep. during that time. Uh, but we were based in Australia, so it wasn't um, it wasn't a great European trip or anything like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. So yeah, so I think it was the coming back to the business world and going, "What does I want to do?" And it was really the tagline became "Creating Experiences to Inspire." Because what I found mm. was that um, you could teach all you want in the classroom, and I could see somebody two years later or six months later, and they'd go, "Didn't remember." Don't remember what I, you know, and so there was this tie up between, well, I learned everything in the military and I retained it. What was it? And obviously, it's the old um, Ebbinghaus forgetting curve, you know, where within six days, you've actually lost 90% of what you learned in a classroom environment after right. just six days. I mean, that drops to something like three to 4% after 10 days. So from a corporate point of view, return on investment sucks. You know, it's really, really training is a really, really terrible waste of money. Mm. Uh, and as our conferences and all that 
type of thing. Mm-hmm. So for me, it was then how am I going to get people to create memories? Because we know with a memory, when uh, we want to pull through learning, if we've got a memory attached to it, the brain's like a filofax and it goes, oh, 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 I know where that information is. And it pulls forward that memory and goes, when I was sitting on that mountaintop right. uh, having a brew with so-and-so, I remember what I was taught about neuroscience. I remember what I was taught. So then it became, how do I create an experiential learning environment and use the outdoors as the conduit? And so right. that's the whole, oh, I'll buy an outdoor center. And uh, John was in England, my husband, he's a military pilot of 35 years, he served. Mm-hmm. And he was in England at the time. And uh, the center came up and a friend of ours saw it, brought us up here. And we bought it with them. We, we came into a partnership for the first two years and then we bought them out. And so I rang John in England and said, hey, honey, congratulations. You've just, uh, we've just bought an outdoor center. <laughs> <laughs> He's like, okay. Wow. And uh, I think last time he was in Afghanistan, I bought a Prado. So uh, I just, I'm just escalating. Right. He away yeah. since. <laughs> What's going to happen next, right? <laughs> yeah, no, no, he stays. He's retired and doesn't go anywhere just in case. Right, right. Yeah, you got to watch out. <laughs> so what, it was already an outdoor pursuit center or what, what had it been before? Yeah, Makahika was. It was originally uh, owned by the government, actually. Sir Edmund Hillary opened it. It was the Outer Pai Pai OPC. Okay. And it was set up as a bicultural centre for disadvantaged youth. Prior to that, Corrections had owned it and used it to house young men that uh, were too young to go to jail. And so they planted all the forestry and lived out here. So it's got this, the land itself has a real connection with youth. Mm-hmm. And we have, uh, it's wonderful to be able to pull that thread through mm-hmm. and still be doing working with youth. We have 3,000 children a year come through the centre. Wow. That's interesting. Yeah, and, and maybe, yeah, why don't we turn our focus to the center itself and we can talk about other things as we do that. But can you just describe where it is? Before we started recording, you told me, but I'm sure listeners will be interested. We're 90 minutes north of Wellington, uh, 45 minutes south of Palmas North, tucked in the base of the Tararua Mountain. So it's great because we've got two airports close for our corporate groups that want to come in. Mm-hmm. Um, I've just put in a helicopter, LZ, so you can in, come in by helicopter as well. All right. <laughs> um, so the centre itself, there's, there's two parts of the of the property. We live, we live on site, so we've got two homes on site. We only live in one now family or uh, staff live in the other one mm-hmm. uh, or my team live in the other one the center itself uh, has high rope zip lines uh, we have school clients monday to friday term one term four unfortunately with uh, covid this year we are we're down a quarter of our annual turnover we lost uh, eight weeks of of camps with children so we've got 700 children waiting to try and fit into the end of the year right but the property's got a river running through it it's a natural bowl there's forestry on one side uh douglas firs there's native bush areas there's a 46 bunk lodge uh and so we set up a big tent camp which houses another 60. so we have these sort of three groups that can, one group it might split into three and they rotate around, they do the adventure training, they do survival training, they do hiking, map and navigation. Mm-hmm. And it's really for youth, for youngsters, it's about consequence of action. And it's about getting them off uh, the blue light. So getting them out and out of off computers. Because mm-hmm. once again, that's my strong um, uh, bias to neuroscience is that I want children, I want to drop cortisol levels, I want to drop dopamine levels. Our big issue 
and here's a rabbit hole, I'll, I'll pop down a rabbit hole, our big issue with digital uh, overload is the high levels of dopamine. So dopamine's our happy drug. And every time you get a, you know, you kill a troll on some planet off, off site that you do, you know, that game that you're playing, mm-hmm. you, you get dopamine and it's more addictive than alcohol and nicotine. So the problem with that is it also inhibits melatonin, which is our sleep drug. So you've got teenagers completely, and young kids completely and utterly stoned off their brains on dopamine. And so we're coming into our evenings and when we're meant to be uh, easing down and, and being full of serotonin because we've ticked off our checklist and we've, we've had this amazing day and we feel satisfied and we've had a beautiful meal and we've shared with our family Dim lights, melatonin, sleep. Well, these kids and teenagers aren't doing it. They are up at two and three in the morning because they can't sleep. The detriment of that, of course, is that uh, there's huge degradation of your cognitive skills because you're sleep deprived. But more importantly, or more, uh, yeah, importantly, is the fact that anxiety is the is the outcome of sleep deprivation. So now you are... You're not sleeping, so you're getting upset and you're getting angry. So you're making cortisol, high levels of cortisol, stress, and then anxiety drops out of that. Mm. So it's a real issue for our youth. So the camp's brilliant because we have five days where the children have no blue lights. And so their behavior by Friday is completely different from the children that came in the front end. Mm. And uh, yeah, so that, so that's the camp. That's the camp side of it. Yeah. And then we've built a so just stunning... can I have a question there. We'll we'll continue sure. on. But um, I'm just curious. Um, you've mentioned quite a few times, like the experience or the experiential part of this, and that's how you create memories. And and I agree with you. But I'm just curious from your perspective. You know, I love the word curating. You know, you curate an experience. How do you do that well for people so that they have experiences that they remember? Um, what's your thought process of designing something, you know, uh, even if it was an overnight experience for people? Or how do you, how do you, what's the secret sauce to, to make a good experience that people will take with them and, and reflect back on? Of course, I can't give you all of my secrets, Steve. Otherwise, oh, I'm no. <laughs> <laughs> You're absolutely right. There is a magic and there is a strong psychology to building an experience that allows people to finish the experience and go, that was amazing. I would do that again. And so it's, it's a bell curve, basically. Children or adults coming in must come into our environment where very quickly they build trust. So those activities up front are quite... Um, what I call fragile activities. So they're not big, hairy-ass ones. They're the ones where uh, they'll learn about, uh, they might be doing some adventure-based learning. They might be doing some team-building activities where they're just getting to know the instructors, the environment, that uh, their food is coming on time, something really primal, like a consistency of uh, high-quality food, and the child goes, oh, I'm safe now, I don't need to worry about that. Uh, and then we build into activities where they might use a harness on a lower activity so that when we get to the high ropes, they've, they've built that level of trust. Mm-hmm. And it's exactly the same with the corporates. When our corporates come in, depending on what we want to do, because we could do the opposite. If my job was to be a disruptor and cause conflict so that we could very quickly look under your skirt, which we do with some, some clients because that's what they want. Yeah. Um, but if we're not, if we're building trust and high performance, then we will bring in a corporate, we will have uh, a program that leads us to have some 
sharing. We don't go deep into vulnerability at the beginning because no one wants to do that mm. without building that sense of team and who we are and trust. And then slowly you just add and then you squeeze. I could, it's like a piano accordion. You squeeze and then you relax completely and make people safe. And then you pull out the learning. And it's really important to go, what did that feel like? And New Zealanders, we really, we get this little bit of sack in the front of our mouth when we go, what did that feel like? And they go, oh, I don't, I don't want to discuss with you. And so you've got to pull that learning out. Mm-hmm. And then you've got to find out what worked for them, what didn't work for them. So what they do more of, what they do less of. And then we get the piano accordion out again and we squeeze it harder and we tighten pressure. Mm. And that person can then recall and go, ah, that's right, that worked for me, bring it on. And so over two or three days, we can take a really dysfunctional team and pull them together in this really strong uh, team that know each other's strengths, Mm. understand that um, a weakness is just an opportunity for somebody to lean into that space. Mm. Uh, And then, of course, the campfire. The campfire, the psychology of the campfire is just extraordinary. Uh, and then you sit in that deeply reflective space mm. and it's extraordinary what comes out. So what do you mean by the psychology of the campfire? I can guess, but if you can explain, yeah. <laughs> that would be so, cool. Campfires do something really primal to us and it doesn't matter what we do. Um, the primal part of our brain is really, really, it releases cortisol in the morning when we you know, get up, we're looking for Neanderthals or dinosaurs. So there's this part of our brain that uh, when we sit around a fire or we cut firewood or we whittle around a fire, we're not looking at faces because we can't see faces. We can see this. So all of a sudden we're actually sitting as a team but individually because I can't, I'm not looking you in the eye. Mm-hmm. And this sense of um, storytelling comes over and there's a lovely saying that light a fire and every man becomes a storyteller mm. and so what happens is that the days and the original the, the history history of the fire was a it kept us warm at night but hunters and gatherers went out during the day as individuals so i went off and got the saber tooth and you went off and did this and and so and so did that and when we come to the fire We've actually, and we had, you and I might have had a fight out there over um, my saber tooth was bigger than yours. When we come to the fire, all of that from the day is forgiven and we reform and we we reset. And so to be excluded from a fireplace was to be excluded from warmth and food and companionship or camaraderie. Mm. So when we sit as a team, all of a sudden we're not in the office. We don't have a title or a rank. And we might have had a fight in the morning or a really strong disagreement about something, but that fireplace pulls that back in and we reset and then we learn lessons. And then the next day we hop up and boom, we're high performing again. Mm. So there's a, it's a really, really deep uh, reflective tool to use, an actual fireplace with yeah. that smell of wood smoke and that crackle preferably with some glowworms in a river and then bob's your uncle you know it's fantastic yeah, yeah. <laughs> those are the right ingredients aren't they <laughs> and yes. i like i like that because i think you're right for, for all of us sitting in a office boardroom you know wearing formal clothing maybe a suit and tie and having a whiteboard like that's one type of way to reflect or to get to know each other or to connect but it's a very different one to having, you know, gone on a, 
a hike or done an activity crossing a river or whatever, and then to come together around a campfire, it's a completely different dynamic, isn't it? It is, and you don't have to do highly physical things either. Mm. So that um, we've actually just just released a campfire program right now for um, the environment that we're in, where we've been highly isolated, mm. huge amount of uh, digital, you know, zooming, everybody zooming. Uh, so we've just released a sort of a half day, one night, uh, acti- you know, corporate activity where you come in, and really all we're doing in the afternoon is we're gathering firewood, we're cutting kindling. We're looking at personality types. So we're understanding those people that loved isolation. You know, you, when you think of um, the introverts that have just thought that being at home for this last 10, eight weeks has been the best thing in their entire world because they didn't have to talk to anybody. And the extroverts that have been standing out at the letterbox waving to complete strangers because they're like, I've lost all my friends. So we, we, we'll just spend some time talking about uh, the introversion, extroversion, the personality types. We'll talk a little bit about uh, Maslow, the old hierarchy of needs. So my strong belief is it affects your business than it is your business. So I have this deep, deep passion that if something's going on in your home, Steve, and it affects your performance in my office, then it's a leadership issue. It's not a management issue but it's a leadership issue. Mm. So we'll just very softly do some things in an afternoon, gather some kindling, some firewood, uh, get ready to, to cook a meal. Some people will go into that, you know, barbecuing and roasting those potatoes on the fire. Mm. Uh, we've got and we've got uh, some pen knives and people are sitting around the fireplace just whittling and just chewing the cud, talking. Mm-hmm. I've got some little... Uh, some little plating going there. Some some people are making little friendship bracelets while they're talking. Mm-hmm. Because if we give the brain and the hand something to do, we're also opening up right hand, left hand side of our brain. Mm-hmm. And then we go into this very gentle evening and the fire and we put our team back. We refit our team. We reset our team mm-hmm. uh, after the strong period of isolation. So, yeah, it's just, you can, you can do so much. It doesn't have to be highly physical. Yeah. But it's highly it's interesting as well because even some of the things that you're talking about, it's not like an in-depth seminar with no. the point of PowerPoint. It's more like, hey, we're going to peel the potatoes, we're going to gather the firewood, we're going to, you know, almost the the fact that it's so basic is what brings the people together, perhaps. Yeah, I mean, I always laugh that I'm shallow. I'm shallower than puddles. I am a um, uh, champagne and giggles girl, you know, but I, I feel deeply, but I pretend I don't, you know, I want people to not actually get too serious about this mm. because it will, the, what the learning and the feelings will be very serious, but we take it from the point of view that this is actually about an experience. Mm-hmm. So this is about um, love and care and nurture and watching out for those micro behaviors because you will see people that don't join them, you will see people that are still struggling and then that opportunity occurs around the fire for somebody to very gently go, is there something that we can do to help you? Mm-hmm. Uh, because we often don't watch micro behaviours in our teams. If you think about an office environment where one day somebody's come in and they normally shave every single day and then normally their, their shirt's ironed, but today it's not, But very few of us would actually go up and go, hey, you look like a sack of whatever. What's going on? Because it's not our business. 
And so it's actually the micro behaviors. Who's not eating lunch? Who's, if I said to a CEO every day, who in your leadership team ate lunch today? They'd think I was crazy. But from a military officer's point of view, every single soldier I see, I check if they're having breakfast, if they're eating lunch, because if they're not, there's two things. A, something's wrong, so that's my nurture part. But from an operational point of view, they're not going to perform. Right. So if you're if you're that person who's got an engineer's brain, and I always um, pick on engineers who really don't care, you know, I don't care, I just want performance, pretending to nurture actually produces the same body chemicals in your team as if you nurture, if you care deeply. Right. So if you want operational effectiveness and you want increased turnover and you want uh, better outputs mm. then pretend you know you need to actually do that um and so it doesn't matter the reason for your nurture whether it's genuine or if it's i need higher operational output mm-hmm. the effect is the same yeah so to watch the what i call the periphery behavior mm-hmm. is really really important yeah and i guess the word that i'm thinking of as you're talking is a holistic view of the person, you know, rather than just saying, well, how many units did this person produce? How many widgets were produced by them? It's that holistic view, taking an interest in the bigger picture, um, which is something I think we're getting better at, but uh, can always be improved. Can I ask a question? Just because so much of what you're doing, it feels like nature plays a really important role. Can you just describe, I guess, the role of nature in some of the things that you're doing? It, it, it feels almost like it's an actor or a, another part of the programs that you offer. And what do you observe with people who are coming in and, and standing by the river or going on a walk? And what's the role that nature plays in all that you do? Really good question, Steve. And she, I'm going to call her she, mm-hmm. is extraordinarily important in the journey. Mm-hmm. I think that connection to land, I think that connection uh, to that trickling stream, that sound of that water, once again, it pulls through that really primal part of our body that, that stops us and slows us. There's a strong... Uh, once again, neuroscience, a strong chemical reaction to that, really high levels of endorphin, really high levels of serotonin, that, that satisfaction, that, that softness of sitting. And I watch um, people sit out in nature, and in fact, often they don't even need to talk. It's just cathartic. It's, it's just, there's no, it's not busy. She's really noisy. Noise, you go out and you think, oh, it's so quiet, but you actually listen. There's... Um, you can hear the kereru cutting through the forest and you can hear the, the um, wing cutting. Mm. You can hear uh, at night time the ruru and, uh, and there's possums and there's all sorts of insects. So there's this whole rhythm and sound and I think it's really, there's a spiritual, very strong spiritual aspect. Mm. Whether you're spiritual or not, um, there you sit and she just envelops you and everything t- seems to cut away. And I think you add that with that campfire and all of a sudden you've got, you talked about the uh, metaphor of the onion peeling back. We end up with all these stripped bulbs sitting around this fire because nature's done her business. She's taken everybody apart. Mm. Um, great facilitation takes the next few layers off. Yep. And then a uh, campfire and, uh, and we own you. You know, it's just, it's, it's, <laughs> you, you, you can be, you can just sit and be in nature. 
Mm. I think it's really valuable to have these conversations and it's kind of basic in that, of course, we all connect with nature, but how often do we forget that? Particularly those of us who are living in cities or urban environments going into the office, you do start to lose that connection. Um, there's a wonderful book, which you may or may not have read called Pilgrim at Tinker Creek by uh, someone named Annie Dillard. So I'll send you a link. Or I'll put it in the show notes, actually. Oh, great. She, she won the Pulitzer Prize in America for writing this book. And it's basically she took herself away from society for a year. And it's kind of a journal. It's basically a, a, a nonfiction journal of what she observed in nature. And she was living by a stream. And, and it's in some ways, it's, it's such a basic book, but she, she goes for a walk, but she observes, you know, looking at the, with eyes that are open and, and observing the birds sitting in the tree and, and, you know, listening to the sound of the river and noticing the moss that's drawn to the light at her window. And it's just really beautifully done. And I think sometimes in our modern fast-paced, how many Facebook likes did I get on that latest post? You know, we kind of forget the beauty that's around us, even even in cities, in the in that sort of um, what nature can provide for us. Mm. Mm. And that's when you listen and watch nature. You actually, it's the exact behaviour I'm asking you to look for in leadership: the periphery behaviors so it's that uh and it's a, and it's also a skill a military skill is that huge external um observant so you're in an operational environment and you're constantly looking left right up down you're not just walking along and we actually have turned there's an activity i call the blue bag and what it was we uh, used it in the forestry teaching some forestry guys because forestry is really really dangerous and it, we put this hang this blue lunchbox on the side of a tree and walked people through the forest and we'd walk them up this track and you'd go up that you'd get to the end of the track and say did anyone see anything that shouldn't have been there and they're like no and you do it's often take two or three times we did this with the black Sox pre-world champs last year before they went to the prague and we bought them in for three days and we did it with these guys they didn't see anything and it wasn't till we said actually now you when you walk through the forest you don't just walk through a path listen look feel observe look at the toadstools look at the different color of the leaves today look at you know really really observe your environment because that then goes back into a high performance sports team so when i'm in prague and i'm at the world champs and i notice that one of my teammates hasn't come down for breakfast that's no different from walking through the forest and looking at toadstools you know you're observing and learning to observe the, the periphery yeah. so nature's a great a great teacher of that. Yeah, which comes back, I'm sure, to a word that you use a lot, which would be mindfulness, right? Like being aware just even of your own breath and where you are and the light. And, you know, it, it's something that I think in our modern day, we, we get so distracted so easily that we don't just take that time to center down and sort of breathe deeply and, and appreciate what's around us. Which is why we've actually Steve built this beautiful luxury village called Arete. And it's the Greek meaning of Arete versus the French meaning. And the meaning of Arete in Greek is that men and women of Arete are people of uh, great standing and courage. And they use wit and uh, strength 
and bravery to be great citizens. So Arete is this little village that's on the back of our property, and we have eight uh, twin chair, if you want, or single occupancy fari. So they're just a, a six by, uh, sorry, an eight by four, beautiful little fari that's been built with roll down plastic sides. It's all on solar, bamboo composting loos, little infinity gas, uh, solar run, showers, beautiful meandering pathways, and you go out there and you just sit and you watch corporate clients come from that bustle and they're actually able to be mindful they're actually able to be present because there's no cell phone coverage there's mm-hmm. there's no uh landlines going there's no computer dinging in the background there's no one knocking on your door and you find these hype these uh executive teams come out of there completely completely changed within two or three days they are different men and women because they've had time to, to just sit in nature. And we've got a, a huge stag on the back of our property and he, he wanders down mm. early or late at night and early in the morning. We've got pheasants and quail that come through. And all of a sudden you can just, you can just stop. We've got a couple of clients who uh, work in the um, investment industry and they uh, bring in their clients from around the world and they wanted a location where they could have these really strong, probably billion-dollar conversations, mm. but then uh, the Christians could go off and pray, uh, the spiritual people would go off and do yoga, the Buddhists would go over and do their uh, meditation in the quiet of this forest around this village, and then they'd come back and then they'd smash out another billion-dollar deal. But they all needed to reflect in their own way. And uh, and be present, and so that's why we built this village so that you can come and sit and reflect deeply in a corporate environment. Yeah, no, it's really good. The, the The last bit of this particular rabbit hole that I'll go down is I lived for five years in Japan, and oh. one of the biggest things I noticed in Japan was that they just had this appreciation for the seasons and for nature, which was absolutely it was kind of mind blowing in a way. Like I was only 20, 21 when I moved there and I taught English in Osaka. And I remember the first time somebody came and said, do you want to go um, cherry blossom viewing? You know, and it's, and basically people go out and we in the West, we kind of like, Oh yeah, that's a pretty looking tree. You know, there's some cherry blossoms on it, but in Japan, it's actually almost a tradition. You go with your friends, your family, you take a picnic, you sit underneath the tree, you're looking up, and it's called hanami, which means look at the flowers, basically. Yeah. Um, and, and then in the autumn time, when the leaves are all changing, like they are now to red, deep red colors and yellow, they have something called koyo, which is looking at the red leaves. <laughs> and people will go on bus tours to different parts wow. of the forest, you know, to see the beauty of nature. And I, it's really stuck with me, just that appreciation for nature that I think we sometimes lack in our Western fast-paced world. I totally agree, Steve. We get really busy, don't we? And yeah. just to sit. Yeah. And so I guess for me, Makahika was the opportunity to bring corporates out of, and, and we can do this. It's, I actually travel and deliver this experience anywhere that you want it because there's lots of nature anywhere, and I can go and set up. I've got uh, instructors that can go in and actually run a 
far, I could go to Vancouver and uh, fly in an instructor who'd run the, the national park at Vancouver and we'd set up activities. So we can do this anyway. You don't have to come to me, but it's just using nature as the conduit yeah. because she's a leveller. Because when you're wet, cold and hungry, you're either an extraordinary man or woman or you're not. Yeah. And yeah. so you can't hide. You cannot hide in nature. Yeah. So it's a really, really good tool. And it's not used to destroy. I mean, you you expose people really quickly in nature, mm. but it's also a great tool for that gentleness of rebuilding. Mm. So, yeah, you can do this. Well, I'd, love to, I'd love to change tack slightly just because I love what we're talking about. And it's really important, I think, to have these messages. But one of the things that strikes me is that you're dealing with a lot of high-performance leaders, you know, sports teams, people coming in. And you mentioned a word before um, about vulnerability and sensitivity and, and things. I'm just wondering, in your reflecting and in your own work as well, thinking about leaders and leadership, what are some of the characteristics that you really see coming through as themes among the best leaders that are coming to participate in, in what you're doing? And, and, how, and basically, what can we learn from those people? What is it that makes a really good leader? Great question. And here's a, here's a little ad for my book. My book that's coming out in August is called Soft Strength. Okay. So I love strength, but I love strength that's used on the light side versus the dark side. So strength pulls up, it raises up. Mm. And the best skills or the, the pieces that I see of, of beautiful leaders that come through here are men or women who care deeply, they are curious, they're gracious, um, and they're really, really self-compassionate, which is quite an interesting, interesting thing. So they are compassionate people, mm. but they can only be compassionate because they're actually self-compassionate. And I, um, and her name's just gone, it'll come back to me shortly, but I was reading a book the other day, and it was about self-compassion versus self-esteem. Right. It was a really interesting piece because we've always talked about uh, having programs and courses to build self-esteem. But, of course, self-esteem uh, is based on comparison. Self-esteem is based on um, if I do this or if I love myself, I'll be good enough. So self-esteem has a strong association with I will actually put people down or bully people so I have a higher sense of self-esteem. So I'm not good enough, so I'm hard on myself. Whereas when I have self-compassion, I go, it's okay. Mm. You know, in meditation in the morning, it's okay. Um, I, I, What did I learn from that rather than I'm a failure? And so men and women that are extraordinary leaders that have that soft strength are really self-compassionate. They realize that they're humans mm. and humans screw up regularly mm. and we cut ourselves in slack and then we go, what will we take from that? And that's exactly the same in leadership. So when people make mistakes in leadership, it's not a time to uh, pull out a big stick. Oh, don't get me wrong, there's times for big sticks. Um, but it's probably a time to sit and be curious and go, why were you in that position? Why? And if you failed, A, what was it I didn't provide you with? Or what was going on at home that led you to a point where you were not performing well? Mm. So, and I was reflecting on that the other day. I led some some men. This is years and years ago uh, in behind Coromandel in August. I took, I'd come from Army to Air Force, and there's two different cultures there. One's a lot hairier than the other. 
Air Force is gentler, more gentlemanly, uh, are using some historical um, words. And I've taken these uh, men and a couple of women, there were eight of us, tramping in the back of Coromandel and it was wet. And Air Force don't tramp and they don't do the bush and they don't do muddy, they do hotels. And uh, we were about four or five hours in and my sergeant, who was in his 50s, and I would have been 23 or 24 as a young officer, the sergeant halfway up this hill just took off his pack, threw it in the ground and said, you can get fixed. I'm not going anywhere. And I'm like, oh, mutiny, great, first time out. And I remember my reaction, and I was. This is what I was reflecting on the other day. As I sent the rest of the team forward with a, a flight sergeant, said, "Just you head off up the track. I'll see you." And my instinct was not to rip this guy and go, "You just embarrass me in front of the team. You just or don't speak to me like that." Which is often a, a parent to child, "Don't speak to me like that." Right. My natural instinct was to sit behind him. I just got out a brew. And I made a cup of tea. So it was a really strong nurture. You know, there's me, 24, him, 52, hand him a cup of tea. I didn't even need to say anything. And very quickly he came out and said, oh, I'm, really, I'm really sorry about my behaviour. I'm just pissed off with myself because I'm not as fit as I was. Um, I'm feeling physically really bad. I've let myself down. I've let the team down. And so he was journeying himself so I think the skills or the things that I see in great leaders is that uh, curiosity as to why that person's behave like that mm. and that ability to be compassionate and go well that's okay mm. you know what would we do differently next time it's not saying that we cut people slack because it's absolutely a time I've got um what I call my tool belt and I've got a cloth on my tool belt and that's for wiping the toes of my boots after it comes out of your backside. So, you know, I have no, no com um, compunction at all about uh, a time where you need to put somebody against the wall and go, that behaviour is not acceptable. Yeah. But if you know your team really, really well, I think what I see in people is that ability to be curious and be soft. Mm. That's really interesting. I love the word that you're using a lot, which is curious. And it's a word I actually try to model on the podcast. I'm not sure if the listeners are able to pick this up, but quite often I'll frame my questions by saying, I'm just curious, and then I'll ask the question. And my hope is that by modeling the use of that word, it will, it will help the listeners to realize, well, I can be curious too, in my own context, talking with, you know, my partner or my boss or the child down the road, whatever it is, you know, just that I love that word, the curiosity of it. But mm -hmm. then the thing that you're picking up is that the, the best leaders are self-aware enough to know that, that they have failings as well and give themselves slack for that as well. Mm. And it also means that the men and women watching you understand that you've made a mistake and you've forgiven yourself. Mm -hmm. And so they will emulate that behavior. So when you're hard on yourself, and it's like, you know, that historical or that um, old picture we had of that harsh father and the son and nothing was ever good enough. Yep. And the father goes, you know, those exam results aren't good enough. And that, that detriment, because that father is only behaving like that, probably because his father behaved like that. And he hasn't got any other tools in his toolbox. Mm. And he's probably feels terrible, but that's his learned behavior. And so that's one of the other things in leadership is to understand that people will often behave because that's the only example that they had before them. Mm. And they will have had a leader who was a bully. And I call that a manager who's a leader. 
yeah. um, because managers, they, they just manage widgets and they do functional things. Yeah. So I think we often have to sit and go, people behave a certain way because the only example they had and the only tool they had available was an example from a poor leader. Mm. Yeah, I, I agree with you. It, it's, it's so often about what, what you've learned, learned behaviors and, and the examples. And, and it, it, it kind of, this is why I like the podcast, finding out a bit about your own experience and your childhood. You know, you had some really good examples and you mentioned you had a privileged upbringing in the sense of your father, your grandfather, like these were people that you could really, really learn from. But for many people, they, they never had that, you know, and, uh, but I, I find it quite interesting. I don't know if you're observing this, but there's a lot of books coming out recently, which are able to talk about this, you know, like I think if we went back a decade or, or longer, of course, but the idea that there are soft skills, that there are words like vulnerability and sensitivity and empathy, and that these are real strengths for a leader rather than being, well, that's just, you know, we're not interested in that. Um, I read Brene Brown's book, Dare to Lead, uh, which came out recently. And of course, she's all about vulnerability and, you know, being open. And it's just fascinating that a book like that would rise to the top of the New York Times bestseller list. Because if you read it, there's a lot of uh, very soft skills, I guess you'd call it, um, that she's talking about as well. Mm. Mm. Yeah, and I I have a little fear within our New Zealand culture that um, we are a reasonably staunch culture and we have a perception of when we men sit in that. So I don't ever t- want to take away from um, that staunchness because I, I love that and in leadership I love decisiveness I love people that make decisions I love people that drive um I love all those I love authoritative behavior but that that comes there's a yin and a yang to that and you've got to know when to flex and so that's the thing I'm not saying to people we should all be collaborative all the time and have lots of hugs that's not what because when we're out in in nature really quickly she'll change so the weather will change and you have to be tough hard make decisions uh and so there's a there's a, a really um strong part of nature that's she, she's unforgiving and leadership can be like that it's got to be really really decisive but there's also when you can and when the time is appropriate that just that that really flip gentle side that yang that goes what is it that's making you back? What can I do for you? Because if somebody screws up, most of the time it's because you as a leader didn't provide them with what they needed to be successful. Yeah. So the only question I think a leader needs to ask every single morning is what do you need from me today to be successful? Mm. Do you need a hug? Do you need a kick? Do you need, what do you need? Um, so it's that ability, that agility to flex, I think is also really important. Yeah. And I guess it comes back to something you mentioned as well, the different personality types, you know, we're not all the same. And um, I've I've worked in enough um, places where I've had different bosses and, you know, different people react in different ways. You know, even how you present information, some people would want it just written on a page. Others would want it verbally conveyed, you know, let's work together and have a solution. But recognizing it, I guess, that we're all slightly different. 
Mm. Mm. We ran a course, Steve, for a couple of years, uh, my business associate and longtime friend, Sally Doherty, and we ran a program, uh, it's called the EDGE program, it was for New Zealand Chartered Accountants, NZCA, mm. and it was 21 accountants over two years and they had three residentials a year at our centre and a couple of off-sites. And the most moving, so if we go stereotypical for me, uh, an accountant sits in sort of the, if we use birds, we've got the hawk and the peacock and the dove and the owl. And I'm a cross between a hawk and a peacock, so I'm a driver and I like to talk. And then you've got the owl. And for me, that deeply analytical person that loves process and figures, it's like watching white paint dry. You know, I look at them and I go, oh, I wonder what shade of white they're going to be. But what was really interesting is that the most moving thing of this two-year program, the most moving thing was that these men, uh, particularly the men, some of them wrote love letters on the first residential to their wives to ask, to say sorry for being so focused on their careers. They'd come out of university, they became accountants, they worked their way up through the company, they were now directors or partners or punting for that, and they had at all costs been driven on that career path of high performance within accountancy. It'll be the same in the legal area, in law, mm. exactly that same thing. And these men sat there, we did this thing on personality, and they realised that at what cost were they actually living their life as these high-powered accountants? And so they were partners, at what cost? And so the, the most moving part of that two-year programme was our very first module mm. that was about uh, the man or woman, your legacy. Who, when I speak at your funeral next week, what will mm. I say of you? Yeah. He was a great accountant, but he sucked as a father. You know, yeah. so what am I going to say? So I think that legacy thing is extraordinary. No, I love it. I've loved our whole conversation because there's so many resonant points, even with my own life, you know, that having had a career focusing on things, I had to reimagine who I was about four years ago, basically, living in Australia and Sydney, working at a big, big law firm, very extreme hours and things and thinking, is this really what I want? I've, I've done some reading on this and you probably have as well, you know, in terms of the first half of life and the second half of life. And quite often the first half of life, people are really focused on the CV qualities. You know, like I got this degree and I achieved this and read my CV, you want to hire me. And the second half is those eulogy qualities. You know, he was kind, he was gentle. He looked after his team, mm. which are such, you know, such contrasts. Um, and you don't realize that you're kind of focused on the wrong thing until you've had some life experience. And then mm. fortunately, people listening to this podcast, hopefully, are able to then transition into that. How can I give back? What is the legacy? And uh, yeah, so it must be fascinating to be involved with people at critical junctures in their life, you know, helping them through. It's an extraordinary privilege, yeah. and I just, uh, it's my life, you know, and, and I'm just so privileged to work with, do what I love, with people I love, where I love, uh, yeah. and, it's, and it's, a, it's a gift, it's a privilege, so yeah. It's so awesome, um, but yeah, it's, uh, it's been really fascinating talking with you and just hearing your own life journey and then what's led you to do what you do today, and certainly I think people listening will have gotten a lot out of it in terms of what are those skills that we need to be cultivating within ourselves. So I just want to say thanks so much for coming on the podcast. It's been really great.
Thank you so much for having me. It's been an absolute pleasure. Well, I do hope you enjoyed that conversation with Sally. I just loved hearing about her life, and we had a lot of deep discussions there, as you could tell, about nature and really observing things around us. If you enjoyed this, then you might want to check out some of the more than 180 other interviews in the back catalog. Until next time. Mm-hmm.